0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. With the abrupt end of the Cold War, how successfully did Britain's armed forces adapt to new challenges, from the sands of Kuwait to the disintegration of Yugoslavia in the 1990s? The critics' deputy editor, Graham Stewart, talks to Professor Jeremy Black, author of *War in the Modern World*. Professor Jeremy Black, we're going to be largely talking about uh, the British forces after the end of the Cold War, the operations they they had after the after the Berlin Wall had fallen. But um, I want to just start with that period between the the Reykjavik, um Um, armament talks between Gorbachev and Reagan in 1986 which led to the removal of intermediate nuclear weapons and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, In that period as the Cold War was reaching its uh, denouement, how significant was the British Armed Forces in that period other than the UK itself being a place in which uh, American weaponry What was housed?
1: Well, I think that's a very good question. I think one could fairly say that Britain was the second most uh, potent member of NATO, uh, not simply because it was an atomic power, though that was important, but also because uh, its military commitment to uh, Germany was matched by a naval commitment to NATO, which no other Power had. And indeed, I've looked up some of the figures. Uh, 17 frigates were laid down in 1982 to 1991. Um, The carrier Illustrious entered service, as did a new Ark Royal. And four of the Vanguard class submarines, which were to be armed with Trident missiles, the replacement to Polaris, were laid down in 1986 to 93. Now, some of those things didn't come to fruition till the 1990s. So, um, the first of those submarines, the Vanguard itself, was commissioned in 1993. But obviously, uh, Britain was taking part in a process of um, upgrading of its military. And on top of that, um, as I mentioned last time, the British Army was pushing a maneuverist approach designed to be doctrinally and operationally very different to what NATO had been offering in the 70s, and that uh, uh, the British were the most interoperable with the Americans in that respect. So I think, yes, that um, it's not a static uh, force. And indeed, I think the government of Mrs. Thatcher uh, deserves the credit for the um the relatively good state of the british military in the early 1990s without mrs thatcher i don't think the british would have done so well in the gulf war against iraq in 1991
0: mm, we're, we're going to come to the gulf war very shortly um, before that of course the cold war ends the warsaw pact is wound up and the british government uh pursues a, a defense strategy Options for change, and this was to prepare the British forces from a, a move to seeing a, a land war on the European continent uh, against against the Soviet Union as, as the major uh, as, as the major activity to a, a broader role. Uh, what what were the main um, ideas behind options for change, and, and what were the consequences for each of the three component parts of the British armed forces?
1: Yes, well, Options for Change was the name of the 1991 uh, defence review, so it was a decade after the sort of the not review that had been so contentious at the beginning of the 80s and i mean it would be nice to say you're a very kind man it would be nice to say that it was designed to enable britain to be an expeditionary uh, power i think in many senses it was a consequence of a new government new ministry that of john major um the uh, of the fiscal problems of the early 1990s uh, which led to pressure for expenditure cuts of the failure which we see still to this day of government to uh, ensure uh, realistic funding uh, that doesn't take up too much of other resources of government in terms of, um, so that in a way, um, I think it's fair to say the major government and indeed to a certain extent Thatcher, the Thatcher government by the end had lost touch with the broader, uh, broader problem of rising public expenditure. Um, and there was also the political pressure for a peace dividend, so called peace dividend. So, what this leads to is a cut in the services, uh, most radically, the army, which strength was cut from 156,000 men to 104,000 men. It was argued that fewer troops were needed because there would not be the commitment in Germany. And there was also the hope uh, to a lesser extent that um, it would be possible to continue the process by which um, the uh, peacekeeping in Northern Ireland was the responsibility of the police rather than in the first instance being that of the army. So those were the uh, particular things. I mean, to that extent, um, the army took the brunt of the change rather than the Navy and the Air Force. And I suppose you could say it was an attempt to put an emphasis on kit rather than manpower. Um, It would be interesting to reflect. I mean, obviously, as with most defense reviews, much of it is drawn up in the background, not immediately before the date it's issued. And therefore it was already to a degree Uh, looking problematic in terms of the new commitment to the Middle East seen in um, the uh, as a result of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990. But nevertheless, um, that proved a way to justify it. So it proves a way to argue that Britain will be, as you classically know, you know the language that politicians and the military use in these terms, a leaner, fitter military, you know, purposed for the tasks of the, whatever it is, 1990s, 21st century, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was not quite as orderly or well thought out a review but then that is the nature of the beast
0: mm. well it, it, the review was being undertaken as events in kuwait were unfolding the the invasion you mentioned by iraq of kuwait in 1990 and an operation desert storm in 1991 where britain was um, a major component in the 35-nation the coalition that the Americans uh, put together to uh, liberate Kuwait. Um, did, did the uh, options for change really, I mean, I suppose it hadn't come into effect by the time British forces were engaged in what we now think of as the first Gulf War. Well, um, major did, did, it have any, did that war have any effect on how options for change uh, ended up being implemented?
1: Well, Major promised that the lessons of the war would be absorbed in it, Um, but I think it's fair to say that, understandably, as with all campaigns, the, um, the war in the Gulf had revealed deficiencies in the military, not least the need to scavenge equipment, for example, to equip the tanks that were sent there. and and which were a major British component of the um, expeditionary force. And I'm not convinced myself that the, uh, that there was a sufficient lesson learning um, uh, process. Um, Others will doubtless take a different view and you should always listen to contrasting viewpoints. But I do not think that there was an adequate consideration of the strategic questions facing Britain at that point let's just put it like that Um, because after all a defense review should be driven by strategic taskings rather than by as it were um, procurement-based decisions uh, relative to the existing structures of the services and you could argue if you like that what the uh, defense review did was uh, encourage a process in which there was a downplaying of emphasis on the army and a um, failure to really ask big questions necessary questions about the continuing uh, value of such a large air force and myself i think that if you had looked more carefully at the potential range of British commitments in the early 1990s, including the uh, prospect that there might be a renewal of problems uh, in Northern Ireland and that there might be issues in the Balkans. I'm not sure I'm as convinced that they did get it right. I mean, in essence, in any NATO or American-led alliance, um what britain could most usefully offer were army and naval forces and its air force the british air force while competent um i think it's fair to say was not such a significant help to the americans
0: mm-hmm. well in the gulf war I, I i suppose we could break the the british commitment down into three distinct groups there is the the air campaign with the tornadoes uh, flying missions. There is the role of British Special Forces in um, identifying where uh, scud missile launchers are and attempting to have them disabled. And then there is the the, the ground war uh, spearheaded by the British First Armoured Division. I wonder if you broke down the, those those three components, um, how how you would assess the the usefulness and performance of, of each.
1: Um, Well, I think special forces was very good. British special forces are very good. I don't think the Air Force role was particularly necessary. I think the American Air Force was quite competent to do that. Um, I think that the armour was very important. Nobody knew how effectively the Iraqi forces would fight, nor were they necessarily aware of how effective uh, Allied doctrine um intelligence application and firepower would be and in that context to have as the british did provide an important armor component was very valuable
0: Mm. and uh, given that so much of the british forces had been spending the last 20 30 40 years preparing for a war across the plains of northern europe um Were we using kit, which was essentially being kind of resprayed and repurposed for a a desert landscape with all the problems of sand getting into the equipment that that involved, or uh, did we have the capacity to have um, the the sort of armaments uh, and munitions which were desert, desert ready?
1: Well, you're absolutely right that there were issues with sand in tank engines, you're absolutely right in that, and obviously that requires particular filters. Um, The British had had experience of training in uh, Middle Eastern areas, particularly training in Amman. Um, I, but what I would say in answer to your particular question is this there is nothing wrong with applying doctrine and equipment from one area to another if you can do, do that successfully. In many senses the doctrine that was devised by the Americans and the British and the Germans or the West Germans also uh, played a role in this doctrine um, for uh, combat in, uh, in uh, on the North German plain as was actually applicable uh, to the sands of Kuwait, and in particular to the the breakthrough and uh, encirclement um, operation that was mounted. And in many senses, what you actually see um, in Iraq is latter stage NATO Cold War equipment and doctrine being used very successfully, and by the Americans as well. Um, It ought to be mentioned that this is not a surprise. After all, um, one of the reasons why Western observers had followed so closely the later wars of the Israelis against the Syrians is that was seen as a way to consider um, the respective strength and viability of um, Cold War equipment, tactics, and doctrine Um, And in a sense, Iraq's another example of that because the Iraqi army is primarily armed with um, Soviet equipment, quite good Soviet kit, um, and uh, is applying a form of Soviet doctrine, more stationary than the Soviets would have used it. But nevertheless, um, there is a degree to which they are applying that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, no sooner has uh, Kuwait been liberated than uh, Britain's attention moves towards the uh, balkans with the the breakup of yugoslavia I, I wonder as the um rolling and developing position of of the british there from a, a protection force in protecting safe areas and, and moving into uh, then an implementation force and then later we'll come to that later the uh, airstrikes in kosovo I, I wonder whether the apparent success of Operation Desert Storm in in the Gulf, I wonder whether that led to a false sense of security uh, on behalf of the British and obviously not just the British, but, but we're talking about the British in this instance, um, or, or whether simply the lessons that were learned uh, for the Gulf were, were only good in those circumstances and were, were really almost irrelevant to the, the very different circumstances that the Balkans uh, presented.
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. I think one of the points one has to bear in mind here is uh, is the extent to which we talk about the British and the Americans. The Americans, of course, did have, understandably, a a degree of hubris, um, and there was lots of talk in the early nineteen nineties of uh, a new age of warfare, a paradigm shift. Um, I remember I was. made myself unpopular uh, by arguing in the 1990s that people were putting too much of an emphasis on a technological optimum. Um, But I think it's fair to say that a degree of American enthusiasm was compromised by what was actually failure in a very small scale operation which was that in Somalia the British weren't involved in Somalia of course that leads to American caution although other factors are aware, uh, uh, play a role both in response to the appalling genocide in Rwanda and to the um the Bosnia crisis now As far as the Bosnia and Kosovo crises are concerned, I think one has to distinguish between the policy of the administration of John Major and the policy of Tony Blair. The Major government was reasonably cautious. Um, It was in a difficult position. Uh, Not least because of the German determination as part of a kind of, um, I mean, you might argue, I think you would argue with some reason that there was a kind of Catholic policy behind uh, the coal administration's recognition of Croatia, which it was not easy in its consequences. Um, But uh, I think what one could say is that in Bosnia, there was a degree of caution shown by the British, which was not to be repeated in Kosovo. So if you're looking for a kind of, as you appear to be implying, gung ho optimism as a result of desert storm, I would say that's more the case of the temperamental and rather childish optimism of tony blair later in the decade rather than that of the major government the major government was more cautious to try and stay in line with what the americans wanted and the americans of course made it very clear they didn't wish to commit ground troops to the bosnia imbroglio and the british approach was similar whereas as you will know in kosovo uh, tony blair was the person who was most insistent that uh, nato ground troops were sent in
0: it seems to me that the uh, british forces involved in um, in unprofor the un protection force in uh, <coughs> excuse me in croatia and bosnia uh, it's a little unclear to me where they're taking their political direction and their rules of engagement from. Is it the, is it the UN? Is it the British government? What is the role of the European Union's uh, attempt at a common foreign and, and, uh, and defence policy? Is it NATO? What? what, it, what, what there are competing competences here, and I'm not quite there, clear. There was certainly competing the forces. Um, no, there good was. Good
1: yeah, there were certainly competing competences, though you're absolutely right in that. I mean, United Nations forces are under the United Nations um, and generally have rules of engagement accordingly. Um, and <laughs> there was, to put it mildly, a, a searching for an umbrella that was going to be acceptable to um Serbia and its Russian patron, and the United Nations was that which was to be uh most or apparently uh, most appropriate of course it didn't rise particularly to the to the task as you know uh mediation didn't really work, and what worked in the sense in uh the Bosnia crisis was a mixture of um arming um, Croat forces um uh, American armaments principally though not only and the military defeat of the Bosnian Serbs which I think was the key issue altering the situation on the ground um, there was also an air campaign and that had some impact as well um so I think that um the United Nations forces were as it were of limited value but you could take an all other viewpoint if you wish to be and say they helped to hold the ring and you know there were um some failures and those failures led to loss of life um and that was serious uh but the um it's interesting to consider what would have happened in their absence. And I think it's fair to say we've seen subsequently, for example, every case is unique, but it's also interesting to read between them. We've seen subsequently the impact in civil crises of an absence of an international peacekeeping force. One can see that most recently in Syria. And I think it's no accident to say that the human cost has been much greater.
0: Was the experience of um, particularly the British Army in Northern Ireland useful in um, being a protection force and then subsequently an implementation force in, in peacekeeping more generally?
1: Um, I think maybe so, but not uh, that's not the only thing. I mean, I think the the British Army was um, well trained, which is the crucial thing. Um, wasn't scared to get out of its barracks and to be willing to patrol aggressively which is also important doesn't want to comment on some of the other uh, constituent parts but that was not shown equally by all of the international participants um and of course the british military had a um i think it's fair to say a very at that level A very high degree of small war effectiveness. I think that's a particular point. I mean, you know, Northern Ireland's a specific context, but the British Army since um, World War II has, although it's been prepared for big wars and obviously has fought them, um, uh, you know, um, the Korean War, Gulf War I, um, and in a very different light, the Falklands. Um, but has also had a long tradition of small war action, which I think it's been particularly good at.
0: Mm. Do you think, uh, and this is maybe maybe a political question, uh, do you think this experience in the Balkans led to a a degree of wishful thinking in Whitehall and in the Ministry of Defence in particular, that actually the future of the British Armed Forces was was one of peacekeeping in a post-Cold War world?
1: Um, I think you're looking there, I mean, I think you're right to ask that question, I think you're looking more at the kind of liberal interventionist rhetoric which developed around President Clinton in in America and uh, Prime Minister Blair in Britain. I think there was a considerable degree of naivety, stupidity, in fact, because they were talking about risking men's lives. So the kind of naivety with Blair in setting up the Scottish Assembly, at least nobody's died as a result of that, but the, you know the, um, the naivety of Blair, uh, his, his facile quality um, in international relations has had led to real people being killed. So it deserves castigation. Um, I think they underplayed the risks of interventionism I think they didn't understand the um, problematic quality of trying to enforce particular codes of values. I think there was a heady confidence that as it were, history was going their way. And cause Tony Blair very much spoke in those terms. And I don't think that led to the necessary prudence and caution. Now, clearly, I think it's fair to say that in a system like the British or the American one, if you are given such a lead from the top, people in subordinate positions, whether political or governmental, are apt to pursue their careers successfully by uh, phrasing their advice accordingly. So as you know, I mean. You can look at my book on the history of the British military, as you know, the subsequent strategic review very much was in those terms. Um, And I think it's reasonable to ask from the perspective of 2021 how wise that was. I mean, I was asking at the time how wise it was, but, um, but at the time, I think there was a general view that a new world order could should and must be enforced this was very much part and parcel of the domestic political rhetoric as well of the Clinton and Blair administrations and therefore they were very interested in the idea that technology both in shape of actual weaponry but also the organizational systems that linked uh, as it were, sensors to platforms—you know—to use the kind of jargon—would um, enable them to be able to pursue an interventionism without an excessive cost.
0: Mm. Well, an example of that is surely uh, the um, intervention in, in Kosovo, where it's uh, it, it's not putting boots on the ground; it, it's a war. Engaged with airstrikes, you know, the, the belief that the technology, the superior um, technology in the air, will be sufficient to uh, uh, win the uh, to win the conflict. Um, I, I suppose let's start with the first question. Given what happened in Kosovo, did did airstrikes win it?
1: No, I mean I've written that quite actively. I mean at the time, as you probably know uh individuals such as george robertson were who was the secretary of state for defense um were arguing that that was the case um he publicly scorned commentators who warned about the difficulty of winning the kosovo conflict by air power alone he publicly scorned people who warned about the contrast between output output is things like dropping bombs and outcome and Um, they were revealed to be wrong. The subsequent uh, Serbian withdrawal from um, Kosovo showed that most of their kit had not been damaged by the bombing. Uh, Not surprisingly so, I mean, it was very difficult to gain adequate intelligence. There was uh, great problems to do with cloud cover over Kosovo and the Serbs proved proved very adept at camouflage. Now, if you want to talk about air power, air power was probably more effective when directed against Belgrade, because there you have assets that are dearer to the Serbian government. Um, But the air strikes against Kosovo, I mean, NATO launched over 10,000 strike sorties. They didn't really achieve uh, proportionate damage. And what's really interesting is if you read the uh, it's in the public domain there's no secret about it the 2000 in other words published in the year 2000 report by the national audit office um, it depicted major problems with the RAF on cloudy days the aircraft were unable to identify targets and were grounded which meant they couldn't use their bombs in addition many of the bombs mounted on the aircraft were unable to survive the shock of takeoff While heat and vibration damage affected missiles and Tomahawk jets were reportedly unable to drop precision guided bombs uh, effectively. And top of that, there was a lack of lift capacity, which led to a reliance on Russian built Antonovs hired from private contractors. So it was a bit of a shambles, quite frankly. And again, the air campaign owed more to the Americans, not least their use of cruise missiles, um, which are not weather dependent as bombers are. I mean, the British fired cruise missiles, particularly from submarines, Um, but it was not a brilliantly successful air campaign. Although, of course, the air-minded offered a very different rhetoric to it. And as you may be aware, there is controversy uh, among, commentators, there was at the time, as to what was the key point for the Serbs. One of the arguments which I have mentioned is the uh, degree to which the Russians persuaded the Serbs that they wouldn't intervene on their behalf. So this wasn't going to be 1914 all over again. And on top of that, um, whether the Russians allowed the Serbs to think Uh, that there might be NATO ground action. The practicality was that NATO ground action was uh, the prospect, you know, which Blair was all in favour of, was a total joke. The obvious port to use was Thessalonica in Greece. Greece is a NATO power. But Greece indicated very clearly that it was not going to allow Greek bases to be used for an attack on Serbia. It was worried that an independent Kosovo would be the background for Islamic irredentism in the area, not least in regard for Macedonia. And incidentally, the Greek attitude in 1999 should have led more people to think about the possibility, uh, which they so glibly assumed that the Turks would allow bases to be used in 2003 for ground offensives against Iraq. Anyway, so in the absence of being able to use Greece, uh, the assumption was that they could land in Albania, on the coast of Albania, a friendly power with sympathies towards the Kosovars um, and also trying to ingratiate itself with the West. Well, that's all very well. But as you all know, communication routes across Albania, zero um, into, uh, into Kosovo Zero in terms of moving armour or anything serious. An absolute joke of an idea. And the French, the Germans, and ultimately the Americans uh, basically said no, and Blair was left as the idiot he was, assuming that he would be able to persuade other people. And of course he wasn't.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, is it your contention that really the, if the Serbs, um, if they hadn't blinked or or miscalculated or or Mm -hmm. been uh, uh, misled, the the British in particular would have been in a very difficult position what was there any kind of contingency plan in Whitehall for how to carry on the uh the campaign given as you say the uh, airstrikes were were far less effective than uh, than uh would have been hoped um you if, if the serbs have just stood firm um g- you know given the difficulties the, the the other options Albania and the Greeks so what 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 how how would things have panned out
1: well the key point there which is very interesting is the americans were running out of cruise missiles um obviously that wasn't advertised at the time but the americans were running out of cruise missiles and This was actually of some significance, um, given that that was the ordinance that could be applied. Well, it's very, um, you know, it's difficult to know what would have happened. I mean, I'm always interested in counterfactuals and counterfactuals should always play a key role in military planning. In fact, military planning is all about counterfactuals. Um, From the Serb point of view, remember, strategy is ultimately a political tool. From the Serb point of view, it was necessary to try and end the war because there were serious economic consequences of it. Serbia had taken an enormous amount of damage through its conflict with Croatia and its commitment to Bosnia. It, in many senses, was impoverished, very impoverished. I remember when I visited Belgrade being struck by um, the uh, missile, and, missile and bomb damage in the center of the, uh, of the city. Uh, I mean, that was later, I mean, that was after the war. Um, and I think it's fair to say that ending the war was a good move for the Serbs. The, this, the, the, it would have been a problem, to put it mildly, if the British government's policy of a ground intervention had been followed and not met with the success that was glibly assumed so in a sense it's not so much the military problem although that was an element it's the political problem that needs to be thought about in strategic terms
0: mm. so in, in essence it was very lucky for Blair that that uh, Serbia didn't call his bluff yes mm. mm-hmm. um talking a lot about the uh, first the Gulf War and then uh, the Balkans these are both Um, Deployments that that have involved the RAF and 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 ground forces. Uh, What really has been the role of the Royal Navy during the 1990s
1: Well, I mean, the navy. First of all, the navy is is involved in both the Gulf War and in um, in uh, conflicts in former Yugoslavia, Um, offshore warships are able to provide um, missile uh, helicopter and uh, aircraft support to British operations as well as actually land in the case of Kuwait and um, you know deploying troops so I wouldn't say the navy didn't play a role uh, just because there wasn't another navy to fight i would say the navy plays a significant role as part of a integrated military system which is that which the british were trying to establish in uh joint command structures in the late 1990s so i would actually be wary of arguing that the navy was not significant in the 90s um and I think the Navy didn't always do a very good job of uh, portraying itself positively, but it's worth bearing in mind that if you look at the 98 defence review, which um, the 98 defence review included a provision for the construction of two supercarriers. And they were designed to be able to provide platforms for an air uh, for aircraft in a way that anti-submarine carriers had not been able to do. So there was a sense, uh, both in the 98 uh, Strategic Defense Review and in the 2002 so-called new chapter um, of expeditionary warfare. And in that context, the Navy was obviously important. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, there's one other um, deployment in the the Blair years which uh... Often gets often gets overlooked, but th- that is the uh, British intervention in the civil war in Sierra Leone. Um, perhaps you could remind us what what that was all about, what why it was under why the British got involved, and what the extent of the operation involved. Um,
1: Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea, uh, three states on the coast of West Africa all had high rates of political instability, the one for which, and and interacting uh, such, uh, in other words, um, as it were, each state's insurgents, governments, uh, intervened in in their neighbours. The British felt responsible for Sierra Leone, uh, which had been a former colony and which was a member of the Commonwealth, and to that extent sent in forces as a result of a particular circumstance now sierra leone proved more successful for britain than somalia had done for america and i think part of part of that is if you look at the operation the british were first of all had a better understanding of the society in and with which it was operating second of all a large number of of the local population saw the bandits and the bandit gangs as being violent anarchists. Um, and thirdly, the British had a degree of mobility in operation that was significant, and going back to our previous connect uh, discussion helicopter borne special forces operating from offshore platforms proved a good example of the value of the Navy, and very much so in Sierra Leone. So I think that um, what one can fairly say is Sierra Leone was a British success. And it helped to stabilize the government in a way that wasn't seen uh, in Liberia, where the You know, as it were, the sponsor power was the United States, but the United States didn't intervene in the same fashion. Now, in African interventions, if you are looking at the 1980s and 1990s, the flag leader is France. France frequently intervenes, for example, in Cote d'Ivoire, in the Central African Republic in Gabon. and the French do so with a greater willingness than the British. The British in Sierra Leone were in a very difficult position because actually, in many senses, the governmental structure had broken down. Whereas for the French, when they intervened, it was often the case, not so much that the governmental structure had broken down, but that they were intervening on behalf of or opposed to a coup um that was as it were a violent transfer of authority from one formalized group of some type or other against the other so i think the british had a difficult call hand in syria and i think they handled it quite well um, other examples of interventions of that type in these years um the british task was easier than the australian task in timor este you know east timor um and and it was more comparable to the australian attempt australian-led attempt intervention attempts in bougainville uh, which was part of papua new guinea and in the solomon islands um so one of the grave difficulties in any intervention is you've got to find somebody as it were to fight you know because if they just melt away hang around attack those locals that they can grab hold of snipe at you a bit but then wait for you to disappear and then they start all over again Um, that's not quite the scenario that you want um and i think it's interesting to see that the australians made a pretty good job in their in their activities and uh i think the british did in sierra leone i think it reflected credit on the military in those years
0: mm, well we'll be talking in the next episode about the the war on terror in afghanistan and iraq but i, I just want to end with, with a to get your thoughts on whether the relative ease relative the term here the relative ease and success <laughs> of the sierra leone uh campaign perhaps lulled Tony Blair and Whitehall more generally into a slight false sense of security as to how easy regime change might be in those larger conflicts which were to come.
1: Well, I think that's a fair comment. I think that's a very fair comment. I mean, as you probably gauge, what well, you read my publications. I do not have a high view of, of Mr. Blair's uh, intelligence probity or capacity to implement um, plans effectively. Um, I think what one might say of military planning in those years is there is a very much a presentist approach so for example in July 2001 the joint doctrines and concept centre of the uh, military produced a so-called joint vision for the UK armed forces uh, and of that and coming from that future navy which was the navy board's strategic vision focused on literal warfare literal warfare l-i-t-t-o-r-a-l means warfare against a coastline and power projection and regarded joint requirements and capabilities as crucial well that's absolutely fine but it doesn't actually prepare you if what you're going to be up against is the kind of challenges that might well now be facing the navy in you know in other waters so there was a very presentist account which stemmed from what appeared to be the obvious uh, strategic environment and which lacked sufficient people who were sufficiently senior to ask questions about the viability of that approach and to a great extent they were configuring defense plans around the ideology of the government but also around the military ideology of jointness now jointness has much attraction has a lot of value but it shouldn't act as a substitute for the ability of the military services to focus on tasks that are very particular to those branches of the military so if you're thinking of navy things like submarine or anti-submarine warfare if you're thinking of the army things like um, home defense against uh, large-scale disruption and i think it's fair to say that there were failings in that respect
0: well we'll pick up the story in the next episode with the um, uh, conflicts in afghanistan in iraq but professor jeremy black for uh, talking us through British deployments in the 1990s. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
1: If you've enjoyed
0: listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website www.thecritic.co.uk.